0: All work
1: and no play makes us dull pod boys. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and this little pod of mine, I'm gonna let it shine.
2: Uh, I'm Ben Sheets. I am the, the caretaker for this episode.
1: You've Cleveland- always been the caretaker. I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm drinking that red, red rum. And today we're joined by a very special guest. We are joined by Katie of Lambly Optic.
3: Hi, guys. so excited to be joining you here on the Pod People podcast, And I'm not sure about you, but I've been experiencing all kinds of shining around my recent watchings of the new 4K transfer.
1: Oh, man. What a transfer. We all just saw this movie recently on the big screen which was extremely exciting. Yeah, well,
2: I know you've seen it on the big screen before, Tease. Yes. Uh, This is the first time I've actually seen it on the big screen, which was a really cool experience. But even more than that, I know this is the first time you've seen The Shining, period, Cleveland.
4: Yes. I was very lucky and uh, got to see it for the first time on the silver screen. Got very glad for it. That's the way to do it.
3: Carolina Theater did a great job with the presentation of that film. Everything went off without a hitch, and that new
4: transfer looks so good. Yeah, I've loved every showing
1: they've done. Absolutely gorgeous. Well, for anybody who maybe does not know film history even a little bit, (laughs) um, The Shining is a 1980 horror film directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers, and it is an adaptation of The Stephen King novel in which a family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter, where a sinister presence influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. And the mother screams a lot. And Shelley Duvall screams a lot. Such a
3: good scream, (laughs) man.
1: So, uh, since you are a first-time guest on our show, Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Your relationship to horror films and specifically to The Shining.
3: Happily. I will happily share my story with you.
1: I know you're definitely somewhat of a film buff in general. Film
3: buff in general. And it's interesting because I I came to horror film kind of in the art house sense. So lots of blood and guts and gore was never all that appealing to me. But the first time I saw Kubrick's The Shining, which would have been at about ninth grade, I thought this is the best film I've ever seen. Not only is it a horror film, but it's a Kubrick. So it, it has that that peculiar aesthetic sense where he's able to apply his genius IQ and his uh, incredible amount of creativity to any genre that he tries and it it doesn't matter how many times i've seen this film i've seen this film numerous times this most recent screening at the carolina theater i i felt physically ill i felt like like pins and needles all over my shoulders just absolute terror at this film and it's amazing when someone can make something that gives you that experience over and over and over again Because for me, Kubrick is tapping into almost something more like what what Kurtz alludes to in Apocalypse Now when he talks about the horror. Something like that baseline of what we don't understand about our own capacities and really having to face whatever shadow selves might be there on the other side of the coin for any particular individual. So it, it, not to say that in my later years I didn't broaden my taste for horror film. I've really enjoyed lots of recent titles that would fall under the folk horror genre. The Witch, super excited about The Lighthouse. Um, that Midsommar, was our last
1: episode.
2: Was awesome. Oh, good. Yeah, it was really awesome. yeah.
1: good.
2: That's really interesting, though, because uh, I recently was watching a little interview with uh, Kubrick's wife. She was talking about how Kubrick explained the desire to make this movie as a movie where it was so scary that people could get their money back if they could sit through all of it without leaving. I don't know if it quite hits that point, but I think it is horrifying, and it's one of the scariest movies ever. And I think what makes it work, going off of what you said earlier, is a lot of the ambiguity of what it's going for, um, where a lot of, you know, cheaper slashers and stuff like that will almost over-explain... The threat in the movie, this keeps it very unexplainable in a lot of ways.
1: I think what's interesting about it, too, is that though Kubrick is definitely no stranger to horrific concepts, this movie is his only dive into just like a straight up horror film. And I think that he proved that he can fucking excel in that just as uh, every other genre that he's tried his hand at. Uh, His meticulous nature is all fucking over this movie. And it it really really uh, enhances the uh, intensity of the the performances and the location as well.
2: Well, one of the biggest travesties when this film originally came out is it just didn't get a great reception. You know, it didn't do super well in the box office. Didn't do super great critically either. Uh, some big publications had some negative reviews for it. And even Stephen King said he, you know, hated this adaptation. Which, I mean, in fairness, a lot of horror movies we consider classics nowadays, stuff like The Thing, for example, don't do super well when they first come out. They only gain their acclaim over the years. In later but years. It, it, it's such a travesty that we didn't get any other Kubrick horror movies because I think The Shining really shows how strong he is uh, tapping into these ideas.
3: Well, you know, he could be a Woody Allen and just be crapping out a new film Just every make the year, same but, movie over and over again. One thing that's so lovely about Kubrick is that he would take his time with his oh, film so that he could be meticulous to every possible detail and have as much creative control over production as possible, which it was well-deserved. But when it comes to things like critical reception... For me, I just think back to people like Van Gogh, you know, when it when it's a great artist who's doing something new, people aren't always going to receive that well when it's something that they're completely unfamiliar with. To me, The Shining still seems fresh now. So to be an audience member in 1980, I, I don't know how I would have been able to handle myself.
2: One of my favorite aspects of this movie is the absolutely fantastic uh, production design. The production design is so meticulous and well thought out. The sets are amazing, and uh, it really adds to the feel of this movie.
1: Yeah, well, all of the interiors uh, were built on on a set, and then they used various different... Uh, hotel exteriors for uh, for the the outside of the Overlook. The the one continuity error in the film that I've ever noticed is that the hedge maze does not appear in the the establishing overhead shots of the Overlook. But other than that, like the detail is it's just insane. And I, I was reading that Kubrick insisted that they shoot the script in chronological order, so they had to have all of those sets built and lit at all times to the extent that uh, Indiana Jones and was it Raiders of the Lost Ark? maybe, I don't remember the date on that, uh, had to postpone its development because The Shining took up all of the space at the at the studio where they were shooting. Yeah. They had to completely shut down production of all other films until Kubrick was finished, and notoriously he said that, that it would take six months and it took almost a year to shoot. Yeah, well, so, <laughs> this movie like is Kubrick
2: does. pretty infamous for having an insane amount of takes, you know, 40, 50, 80-plus takes for a single shot, via uh, Shelly Duval,
1: the "Here's Johnny" uh, shot where he breaks into the bathroom, they broke sixty doors for that oh, single my gosh. shot. 60. sixty, that's absurd.
3: But you know, for all her suffering, Shelly Duval, that awkward, difficult relationship that she had with Kubrick. He's doing exactly what he needs to do to get the performance that he needs out of her because her screams when that axe is coming through the door, her facial expression, as she is losing her shit.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think it's a way to get an authentic performance, much like The Exorcist, uh, William Friedkin, shooting a a gun behind uh, an actor's head right before they shoot to freak them out, you know? You get an authenticity out of it that's hard to replicate. artificially. I'd
4: I'd be curious to know what some of the earlier takes look like and, like, how they compare.
1: I mean, that being said, like, Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall notoriously horrible. I was about to say, I don't want to justify too much of that. And I won't. She she herself, in later years, has said, though it's an experience she would never want to relive, she thinks that she gave the best performance she could because of what he did. Um, So, I mean, at least she feels like it was for a worthy cause. And I mean, her performance is, is absolutely incredible.
3: I wouldn't wish it on anybody. No, I mean, her
1: hair was falling out. She, she got so stressed out that she was losing her hair and had to continue drinking water on set because she would literally run out of tears. She was dehydrating herself to such an extent that she could not cry anymore. They had to keep pumping her full of fluids to, to keep the waterworks going. And it's, it's
3: insane it's a little meta you know that this is what's going on with her character and her husband and you know the most powerful masculine relationship that she has in her in her character's life is then added to by this relationship that she has with the director
4: both abusive power dynamics Mm yeah
2: yeah well it really explores the ideas of Even outside of the events themselves, you still see kind of the lasting effects of stuff like um, abusive relationships, for example. And that kind of plays into the whole idea of the Overlook Hotel. And uh, a term I like concerning it is kind of hauntology. And what what I mean by that is, you know, even after the horrible events of the, the Grady family years ago... You know, they cleaned it up physically, the memories and the ideas and the artifacts of that still exist in the Overlook itself, you know. And the whole idea of that plays into the idea of, you know, uh, Jack hitting Danny once. And even though he, you know, brushes it off as not a big deal or an accident, the, the lasting artifacts of that and the tension of that continues through... The relationship with the three of them and kind of comes to a front in in the film sure it's um, like a
3: resonant trauma
2: absolutely exactly the, the trauma
3: experienced in that one moment had its resonance in in the whole family dynamic even Shelley duvall's character is making excuses for jack wendy when she's sitting down talking to the the psychologist or the you know children's
4: therapy the ch- yeah right, the, the exactly. doctor
3: it's like oh well you know um, it's just one of those things that can happen in any family yeah she
1: literally <laughs> says it's one of those things like <laughs> yeah. you know how it is Yeah. you know sometimes your husband you know gets drunk, gets and, drunk and
3: dislocates <laughs> your
1: toddler's shoulder you know it's just one of those things
3: but i think it's i think it's an interesting perspective or an interesting angle to think that that an event charged with that kind of energy doesn't just happen and go away in the moment that the time is has passed that it has an impact almost like it gets soaked into the collective unconscious yeah. of whatever person or or place
2: well and i think it's reflected so brilliantly with the overlook itself and how it's shot in so many of these sequences you know it's shot with a really wide angle lens the characters are small in the frame and you just get so much of the environment and the overlook itself and you see kind of the the shadows and the emptiness of it and you're really left to ponder not only the characters but the environment and the events that have happened without them being there
4: if i had to summarize so much of this film into one word, whether it be the framing of the, the hauntings, the dialogue, the scenery, the cinematography, I pr- use the word organic. And it was something that surprised me on my first viewing. This film is so steeped in pop culture. I unfortunately saw, like, the the homage sequence in Ready Player One before I saw the actual film. And I... Christ. I know. (laughs) We regret the hell out of that. But um, now I'm just thinking back at, like, me watching Ready Player One and thinking, like, I could have just been watching The Shining, then what was I doing with my life? Anyway, my point is, is it's so steeped in pop culture that I... My expectations with this film were somewhat different than the actual thing itself uh, in that I was expecting the film to be a much grander spectacle. And while the cinematography is, is masterful and it does have a degree of presence, it's all so organically worked in that the film succeeds in frightening because it makes you forget it's a film. And it, it does such a fantastic job of just of pulling you in. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an organic is definitely the word. It's that I would so
2: use. atmospheric too, you know, like you really feel the atmosphere of the movie. And I think part of the reason it does that so well is you get so many long tracking shots, you know, exploring the overlook, uh, moving from hallway to hallway, kind of getting every nook and cranny. As you know, Danny rides his trike, things like that.
0: It's
1: notice. It's notably one of the very earliest uh uses of the steady cam rocky was one of the ones uh before it and there were, i think there were two other late 70s films that had yeah, used Yeah, i think the a the Palmer movie used um, it
2: before but
1: yeah so like you you get so much of that with uh with danny riding his big wheel around and I, I love the sound design in those scenes of him going from the carpet to the tile to the carpet and how there's no music and it's just <sighs>
0: Totally immersive.
1: yeah it's uh it's it's so good. It's so tactile, yeah a hundred percent. and
2: one of the things going off of that that I really love about those long shots are obviously all of this is a sound stage, a very elaborate sound stage. extremely elaborate um, considering but considering Kubrick's attention to detail, a lot of the layouts of the overlook itself in terms of interiors. Uh, lead to a lot of impossible architecture. Right. You know, hallways that would go over top of each other or, uh, you know, windows to nowhere, things like that. The architecture and it really, doesn't
1: make sense. Yeah, it yeah. really
2: emphasizes kind of this labyrinthine design, which works perfectly between the hedge maze right. and... mirrors the hedge uh, maze. ...the overlook itself, and I think it really disorients.
4: Oh, yeah, and it, it's never something that you... Uh, your attention is drawn to yeah like all of the little impossible architecture elements though the windows the the hallways that overlap they're all things that you feel but you you're never just brought they're never brought to your attention right and it's
1: you can never it, you can it's, never it's orient yourself in the overlook hotel like you know the locations like the the main room where Jack works their little apartment the the kitchen uh, you know you know all of these spaces but you don't know where they are in relation to each other at all uh, other than uh, okay this one's upstairs and this one's downstairs but how do you how do you find it
3: I love how invisible it is though
1: yeah because
3: until I was watching other people break down that concept of all of the the invisible you know doors leading to to nowhere or or the incomprehensibility of the space that's just something that's felt as an audience member yeah that's one thing i love about kubrick's filmmaking is that there's nothing on the nose about it it's all slight of un- hand unless well it's the, deli- the characters
1: don't get lost so you as you as the viewer can't orientate yourself based on the layout of the hotel but it has enough of a logic to it that like the characters are not losing themselves in it you sure. know they always know where they're they're going so it's like you feel like you can sort of latch yourself to them it's like oh I'll, okay I'll be alright I'm not going to get lost and because at least this person knows where I they're going. I definitely
3: do when I think of, of how my mind works Scenario through the anything. film it follows very easily because there's an almost excitement at the beginning the idea of having this huge space to yourself self that's full of nothing but possibilities i mean jack's excited because he's going to have the most ideal working conditions that you could really want as a writer right his wife is ultimately taking care of all the things that he's been hired to do at the hotel so he's got this huge space everything is laid out in such a beautiful and kind of grand way But then it starts to close in. The limitations, even of such a a, a big and, and elaborate and aesthetically pleasing space, start to... It's almost like you start to see the cracks, like the shining itself, this psychic power or whatever starts to build little little bits of doubt. You know, suddenly Absolutely. you're not quite sure where you are or where it's going.
2: Well, that's one of the things, too. I think a lot of the biggest... Uh horror moments in the movie are from you know that comfort being stripped away from you for example going back to the the trike scene mm-hmm. in the hallway when danny turns the corner and suddenly those there's the two girls right standing but up there. to that
3: point are you not like right there with danny exactly a kid on a trike thinking right. i've got mm-hmm. this whole hotel to be on my My what did you call those? Big wheels. Big wheels, yes. (laughs) That that's like the dream is to have that kind of freedom.
1: Oh, I and, and then Until... to be to be there with him, and then hit that corner, and the girls are there at the end right. of the hall. You realize Ooh, the dark side of freedom.
3: It's like, oh wow, no, there's some paranormal freedom that's happening here. Well, that is it's like...
1: that's a great parallel to make with the woman in the bathtub in in room two three seven when Jack goes to to investigate she appears as, like, a a beautiful, young, sexy, naked lady getting out of the bathtub and it's like... Well, that's appealing to his desires for more freedom to get away from like the the quote unquote nagging of his wife, though she's not nagging at all. She's being completely <laughs> is she not,
3: like the most passive. She's, she's so
1: completely reasonable with him, but he's so hostile towards it. So to be to be presented with this this momentary temptation, the freedom, like you said, uh, from like what is binding him before, and then to have that be taken away in a really horrifying fashion when she becomes a, a, a decrepit old corpse. It's fantastic. Yeah, whether it's the thrill of childhood or the allure of like a like a succubus sort of
4: entity or the family dynamic, the the film does a, an exquisite job of, of perverting those elements. Yeah, and it understands how to give you the the beauty and the wonder of it first before the subversion.
1: Takes and place. it's great, and it's neat too, because it is a horror film, but it has an extremely low body count for, for horror. Two people die in the entire film and one of them is Jack at the end, you know? Well, Spoilers for uh, one of the most oh, famous geez. movies of all time, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I did
0: not know what happened <laughs> and, before. Right? I mean, Right. <laughs> you can't, one of the like things, not.
1: too, is it's
2: very... it's not full of blood and guts, you no. know, outside of oh, the, I mean, the, the elevator down-
3: sequence. <laughs> it me, is, I which is literally full yeah. of blood. But it's just blood. Yeah. it's not attached to any particular body that to me is one of the most horrifying sequences right. I have ever seen in cinema because I think in this most recent viewing, I was I made the connection that that blood was almost representative of all the bodies that came before. That's exactly what it is. What's off screen and just how many people. It's existed. representative
1: of all of the death that the hotel has seen. Fun little trivia thing on that. That shot was only the third take, which people would be like, oh, wow, Kubrick only did three takes and then he was happy with it. It took nine days to reset between each take.
0: (laughs) That's insane. So
1: it actually took a month of working on just that, almost a month of working on just that shot.
3: I feel like I'm sound. And they took it on like, the, the idea of being able to do that and just really dig to in fill to an elevator with blood.
1: The, just yeah. the
3: right wave to come out of it.
1: Oh, it's it's so good. The way it comes out and hits the wall oh, and bounces yeah. back onto the, over to the other side. The the reason they didn't use the first couple of tags is because Kubrick said it doesn't look like blood.
0: <laughs> really uh,
1: funny. Well, one thing I
2: wanted to talk about with the scares. Uh, just going off of what we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. is I think Kubrick has a really interesting approach to the scary moments in the movie. Instead of showing the scary moments themselves in sort of a jump scare format, almost every time we have a horrifying sequence, he shows the reaction of the character before we actually see what they're looking at. And I think that's really fascinating. It, It almost forces us to... ...put ourselves into that emotion. They do that a lot it, it with Danny's... It primes Danny, you
1: really well. They do that a lot with Danny's visions. Yeah, They yeah. will see, like, the horror on his face before you really see anything particularly
0: horrifying. Well, that paired
2: yeah. with uh, the punch that they have. I think this movie has some of the best executions of punch-ins of any movie um, because all the rest of the movie is at such a wide angle that when you get those punch-ins on... You know, for example, Danny's horrified expression in the break room. They have so much more punch to them. It really emphasizes the fear in his face even before we see you know he's looking at the the girl standing
1: there yeah
4: and it's so refreshing because you have to think too that everybody else like it was late 70s you know like in 1980 is what you said
1: right? when the film came yeah, out yeah came so out, they were in it was in production Seventies, yeah, like 79 it, everyone yeah. else
4: is doing those like horrible like heavy zoom in shots at the time and I'm just imagining <laughs> like how poor the effect would have
1: been yeah punch-ins are one of like super dramatic punch-ins are one of those effects that are are so overdone that they're comical now but i agree with you that in the shining they're not I don't I don't laugh at them like I do no. at punch-ins in, well, in other 70s well, movies. there's usually like
4: hard cuts to to close-ups, right? Like do we are there too many like sequences? Mm, there's the a lot were, like, of punch-ins. There's some yeah, punch-ins. there's there's
2: quite a few punch-ins of the door with redrum of Danny's face. Oh, you're you right. know. Yeah. Um and it's I think it, so organic. I think it works didn't... so well because the movie is so restrained in having close-ups to begin with. Yeah. And when it does it's still with wide angle lenses. So when it actually has the zoom punch-ins, you know, it feels so much more intense because we don't actually get those close-ups very often in the movie.
1: There's only one shot in the film that I do still find legitimately funny. I laugh out loud every single time no matter how many times I've seen it, and it's the very slow dolly in on Jack while he's fallen asleep at his typewriter <laughs> and he's just going whoa, whoa, whoa. I find that shot so fucking hilarious every like, time it's got
3: legitimately <laughs> comical moments though right like yeah, even yeah. even later on in the film where Like when you see Scatman Crothers in his—I don't know if it's his house or his His bungalow, yeah,
1: his bungalow—and he's got those
3: amazing framed nudes on his wall. It's like,
1: yeah, with all the big afros. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. jealous. Honestly, there's,
3: there's something to be said for. Keeping things a little lighthearted so that the audience doesn't just completely sure. descend into
1: Le- levity is important. I guess I should more specifically say that uh, a shot that I find funny that I don't think is supposed to be. No, oh, sure. Um, I think that there is, especially in you know like. Early stuff with developing Jack's character. You know he's witty, he's sharp. You know he's a writer, so like he's got some, he's got some. You know funny lines. He's
3: got some eyebrows. He's he's got got some. (laughs) He's got some
1: eyebrows. Jack Nicholson acts with his eyebrows, man. (laughs) Um, Powerful, powerful eyebrows. They're phenomenal. But but that that just that slow that slow dolly in of of him just making noises while he's asleep is. I love how
3: primal it is. Well, that's it's it's almost. That's
1: the thing is like when he when he wakes up, when Wendy comes to him and he's like telling her about his nightmare, about like murdering her and Danny and like chopping them up into little pieces. His performance in that scene, like the the horror in his face and in his in his delivery, like it immediately removes any levity from it. Like I laugh at it and then I'm immediately no longer laughing. No, you it's know? funny, though. Um, but, but it's really funny. <laughs> It all kind of harks back
4: to that perversion-subversion we were talking about earlier. Like, you get that sense of beauty and wonder or comedy or brevity before he perverts it. Yeah. You know, and and so many other films, it's just, it's a it's a lead-in with, with spooky synths, and it's just tension the whole time. And it, it plays its hand too early, you know, and this film never, you know, I think, like, over overplays its hand.
1: it it does exactly what it sets out to do but i mean that is kubrick he was such a perfectionist he would not release something that he wasn't 100 percent sure on in every single little detail
0: yeah
4: and you hear that and it it makes you think that the film or it made me think going in that the film was going to have this degree of like surgical precision but so much of that I think attention to detail is an attention to make it look naturalistic. Yes, sure. that's what I... I But that is where that surgical precision is there is because it works so
1: hard to make you not notice.
4: Basically, I I think I went in expecting, like, Wes Anderson horror, and that is absolutely not what I...
1: Yeah, <laughs> what I got. And I don't get me started on it. Wes Anderson because I could I could start making very unfair comparisons between him and Kubrick. Uh,
2: well, uh, the thing that a lot of critics at the time complained about is uh there there's a formalism to the film to the point where it can feel cold. And I don't really know if I got that. You know, I I think honestly the the performances themselves are pretty big you know, I think they're just well executed to the point where they don't feel cartoonish. You know, there's a formality to, you know, the, the style of it, but I don't think the performances are that good clinical or cold no no
1: cold a- i would describe the film as cold but intentionally cold i or think chilly. that <laughs> that that adds to the sense of unease but no the the performances are not clinical by any means no a
4: good example i think is when uh danny comes back from the game room when the family's touring and i think jack nicholson says something oh, it's so 70s to him was like yeah you done bombing the universe yeah you know it's like
3: all right I'm going to get into it then, because to me, it. when it comes to The Shining, especially after this most recent watch, I, I couldn't help thinking mostly about family dynamics, especially about uh, misuse of power, those kinds of power dynamics. For me, it goes back to something like uh, like a baby boomer ideal of the 1950s. Lifestyle where you've got the nuclear family and you've got this idealization of like the breadwinner dad and the stay at home mom and the mostly well adjusted kid. But then the perversion of that going to Jack almost, it's almost like his. Like, he's concerned about the fact that he's an artist, right? He's a writer. Right. He's got, he's got to produce something that's original. He's got to be working on something that says something to someone, all the while being a father. So he's got these various pressures in his life. Not only is he a failed artist, all he can get out is whatever these spirits are able to to generate through his work. But he's also got this incredible amount of tension with his family and that they're preventing him from being able to explore that. Because it seems like all he really wants to do is to dissolve into this almost mythical world of the hotel surrounding him. Right. He doesn't really want to work. He's completely obsessed with his work. But he doesn't really want to be doing that. He wants to be partying. He
1: romanticizes the idea of being like a secluded hermetic writer who, you know, goes up into the mountains for the winter and comes back with like a masterpiece novel. Well, and
2: part of the reason he goes to begin with is because he's in the throes of a writer's block that we see throughout right. the film that, you know, kind of elevates some of those tensions.
1: Right. Well, we, we know that he's, that he's been like a school teacher, but... As far as we can tell, he hasn't had any kind of success as a writer.
3: Right. Well,
1: he's like he's he's a wannabe writer. He's feeling
3: tension about the fact that rather than producing some kind of of exhibitory work, he's been teaching kids. English or whatever. And
4: from the way he treats Danny, I think we can get the vibe that he's not a very good like, children's school teacher either. Like, he I, was I,
3: definitely not doing that because he
4: wanted to uh, be doing that. Uh, yeah, we get the yeah. vibe that that was Probably a short lived occupation as well. Especially when he, he frames it to, to Wendy saying, like, well, you know, what am I gonna do when I get well, back? in the, Am I gonna be a mechanic? Am I gonna be a whatever? Because like, yeah, yeah, I think your your days of being a school teacher are behind In you the book he beat
1: up a student. Know. So oh, well, there you <laughs> no. go.
4: Okay, there you go. Exactly. I did not know that. That makes
1: great that's sense. Why that Colo- that's why they had to move to Colorado. That's why they had to move to Colorado because he he beat up a student.
3: What is this toxic masculinity that is <laughs> that is <laughs> (laughs) plaguing jack and that's really for me that's that's where the meat of so much of my interest comes from if it's not in the phenomenon of shining itself it's in that power dynamics relationship between jack and wendy especially where jack is in a position to have to prove his worth as a father as a breadwinner as a as a creator really And he's failing miserably at it. And he's taking it out on the world that he's got all these expectations laid on him, but he's ultimately a failure at what he's been doing. There's not any value that he seems to be bringing to the world. So whatever expectations there are on him, he's just
4: looking for an escape. Right. And you you see that stereotype, I think, like in the industry as well. It's the type of person who, who wants to be a writer because they like reading. You know, and it's more like, oh, well, I like escapism, and so I want to fall into this. Like, you see that, like, in the art world, especially. Like, a lot of the artists that I listen to and stuff will talk about, like, those people who, who like, you know, they want to work in video games because they like playing video games. It's like, well, you know, like, that's not the same.
3: Sure. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of it in the sense that I love movies. I love watching movies, writing about movies. You know, I went to school to make movies, so. Just like us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's a world that, of course, you want to be a part of. And, and
1: none of us are making movies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Here we are, recording Right, right. here we are, yeah. people listening to us talking about movies.
3: I'm still active in the film community. Here I am, talking about film. <laughs>
1: this well, is our it, contribution
4: to the, the film community right yeah, now. Right, exactly. well, the key, <laughs> the key difference is you're still doing, Right.
1: Well, like, and that's, I think, a different from...
3: There's always, you know, what does it mean to be doing? I
1: mean, we see what Jack has been doing. We see pages and pages and pages of all, all work, work and, and no play.
0: play. <laughs>
1: makes Jack a dull boy. Which I, uh, I read earlier today that Kubrick typed all of those pages <gasps> in his spare time offset <laughs> For just, like, weeks at a time. Just, like, in his spare time he was just typing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. What an incredible human being. Right, at least you can say that he was uh, abusive to his cast, which he certainly was, no need to sugarcoat that, but at least, uh, at least he subjected himself to the same uh, rigors of his meticulous nature.
0: At
3: least he had something to show for it at the end. At least all that suffering got to turn into great art. How many shitty films have there been where people suffered to make it?
4: Excellent point. No, it's so true. Some of the best art, I think, like, in human history has come out of, like, deep suffering.
2: But that shouldn't be an excuse for the suffering itself, no. too. You know, like, Absolutely for every not. Kubrick, there's a dozen wannabe Kubricks that are just torturing. They're their, just straight they're up abusing. Yeah. their they
1: Yeah, no, that, that is definitely not to be condoned. It's it's the kind of thing that I would not be so lenient of if the actors themselves who underwent are like you know it was worth it for the sake of the art we did what we had to do wouldn't do it again but look what we have I, I think the the answer is just all consenting parties
4: yeah like if if you were if you are there to be an actor and to put yourself through like that that sort of hardship bondage
1: is great if everybody involved is into it exactly sure, yeah. as long as like consenting everyone has signed adults. that contract exactly.
4: beforehand it's fine but only then
1: In a
2: weird way too this this is gonna sound weird, but I feel like it's more appropriate for the shining and the themes of the shining than a lot of other movies that do it um, just because it's kind of of the artifacts of abuse and how that maintains itself. And resonates itself throughout the environment and the surroundings, sure. and, yeah. okay, and I think that works well
4: along those lines at the beginning of the podcast.
3: It's like. a testament to the suffering that that the cast and crew would have gone through to have something like that at the end.
1: Something I find very funny is that in extremely stark contrast to what Kubrick did to Shelley Duvall, he was exceptionally good to Danny Lloyd. Uh, oh, I was going to ask. He, Danny Lloyd didn't know that he had made a horror film until he was 17. He was six during the production of this movie, and they led him to believe that they were just making a drama film, and he saw a heavily edited version when he was, like, 11 that cut out most of the horror, and he didn't see the actual cut of the film until he was 17. Wow. But, like... They Kubrick was super nice to him. They like played music on set to like get him ready for for the different scenes and stuff like that. And no idea he was making a horror movie. They pampered that little boy.
3: Well, I mean, if you look at Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy is gaslit out the ass. Yeah, that that is her Absolutely. entire existence is having someone pitch a false bill of goods and her trying to make something out of what she's been given. Who knows how they actually got together in the beginning, but seems like maybe it was one of those deals where, like, oh, we've got a kid on the way, I guess we'll do this family thing, Right. and she's just trying to make the best of it and be as pleasing of a presence as possible and be as non-confrontational as possible. So if you're a director and you're Stanley Kubrick and you're looking at this situation and you're like, how do I help this actress become Wendy? I'll just gaslight the fuck out of her and just make
1: her life. Just turn her into the character. It doesn't matter
3: what she does. It's not going to be good enough. Yeah. In that position, I would have a much easier time being able to emote on yeah, camera. Yeah, well,
1: because at that point, it's hardly acting anymore. It's it's just the reality. <laughs> sure.
2: The older I've gotten and the more I've seen this movie, the more I kind of look at this movie from her perspective. And kind of a lot of the horror for me is gleaned out of that, being stuck in I the agree. situation, being trapped
1: in an empty hotel. Wendy's with... the lens of this film. I, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Like, it's... It's hard to identify with anybody other than Wendy, you know? Like, you like Danny, you like uh, Dick Halloran. Jack is likable to an extent, but, like, Wendy is the lens, I think.
3: Sure, and she's, like, a regular... She's just a regular woman, right? Right. She's like a girl next door turned wife trying to do the thing. If you look at that in comparison to the other major female character in the film, the woman in room 237, she's nothing but either a massive idealization of what you get with femininity or what happens to femininity after it ages in in the the most horrifying way. Jack's going into it like, this is what I thought I was getting, but this is what I feel like the world is actually giving me.
1: No, it's a very astute observation.
3: He deserves it. He deserves he the horror that he, he experiences in that moment when he thinks he's got a nubile body in arms, but then there's a decay. Well, I
1: think I think he I think he deserves everything he gets in the film because the the hotel, the Overlook, gets to him for a reason.
3: I love that. If about he
1: was it. if he was of a stronger constitution, the Overlook would have nothing to sink its teeth into in the first place. Sure, you know like it is it is just amplifying his true self
2: yeah and his weakness one of weakness too. Yeah. Yes. yeah um you know a great example of that is you know the hotel is dry it doesn't have any alcohol and he's quit alcohol jack's quit alcohol and suddenly in the gold room but surprise, he's not happy surprised. about it
1: he knows yeah he knows he needs to be sober but well, he's not. A, but he doesn't. He's not he doesn't willfully. You gotta laugh proudly. No. Wendy says
4: five months. Right like, during that bit, like, oh, five whole months. You know, like, like my
3: life has been a lot better for wow, five months. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, it's and just, like, <laughs> but I mean, he probably, says, like, probably like, hasn't because he's probably been him. way more irritable. Oh yeah, coming off of not mm-hmm. having alcohol for five months, yeah. and that's what also, he says like, it's when just five
4: months like, when he has yeah, his first.
1: Yeah. Uh, but but to him that's a long, long time. time. Oh yeah. Cuz when he has his first drink or quote his his ghost drink, uh, he says like "Here's to 5 whole months on the fucking wagon." You know? <laughs> like that has been an eternity to him.
3: Sure. Well, if you've got if you're an alcoholic and you've got that physical dependency right. on the, on the sauce, Five months is a really long time. It is. You're not going to be having a good time. And if you need all that a to of escape whatever yeah. your demons are, then probably you're not going to be happy about it.
1: Or ghosts. In this Man, case. the... That fucking scene where he goes to the, the bar for the first time is so good. so good. Joe Turkle is so good in that scene as Lloyd. I love the way that scene is lit with the, the glowing top of the bar, but so it makes Joe Turkle look like really skeletal. Yeah. He's got his head he's got the the Kubrick stare going on, but is like he's got Such like dark shadowed cheekbones. The whole design
2: of the gold room is so cool, with all of the gold tiling on the walls and the ceiling, just reflecting the light. You get this really interesting otherworldly and once again, it's about ethereal glow off of everything.
1: That ideal thing that jack is trying to grasp everything is gold you know he's drawn to the gold room he wants he wants the the gold
3: yes he wants to be somebody he wants right. to be somebody without really putting in the work to be somebody. and
1: and by the end i guess you can say that he's found his place he does become somebody He becomes the caretaker yeah, he's always been the he's caretaker. become another
2: artifact that that haunts the the overlook right you know
4: yeah i'll tell you what my favorite set is and it's the bathroom oh uh, yes. yes the fucking bathroom man like with the with the butler like with Grady the, yeah the, the, those red stalls are just so rich
1: I love how often they break the 180 degree rule in that scene to yeah. start like disorienting you and put it like having in one shot Jack is on the is in the right third and then they cut and Grady is in the right third like right where Jack because is because he's becoming, because he's becoming yeah, Grady and they yeah. start to mirror
4: each other ah oh, it's so good and of course like it's the room where he's he's imbued with this like ghostly need to m- hack his family to bits is this red
1: you know bathroom like it's so,
4: yeah.
3: oh, it's so yeah. good it's very evocative
1: yeah it is it's it's hellish but at the same time very sterile it's exactly very where you
3: don't want to be if you've eaten some mushrooms oh my god,
1: exactly. <laughs> oh god no you are <laughs> so right no <laughs> oh, man. it's
3: really like...
1: absolutely <laughs> horrible. <laughs>
2: Not one I, thing, no. one thing I want to mention is the music in this movie. What a soundtrack between Wendy Carlos and uh, Ligeti! Yeah, um, it's just so evocative
1: and horrifying. You know they, and, you know they did an entire electronic score for the film, and the only thing that remains is the theme.
2: Really? Yeah. Well, uh I know I know, I know Kubrick score. had a good relationship yeah. with Wendy Carlos because she did um the Clockwork Orange soundtrack. Right. Um before this. I bet she was probably okay with that. So know? is Wendy
3: Carlos uh, on the opening theme? Yes, yeah. With yeah.
0: the whole The iconic. Ba, 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 it was yeah. so crazy.
3: You know, a day before they screened The Shining at the Carolina in 4K. Literally the day before I was listening to the local classical music station and they played that.
1: Oh, wow. And it's I was the... like,
3: this is some Shining. This is Shining <laughs> happening it's... right now. A
1: lot of people don't realize or maybe just don't know but that melody, it is directly taken from From the um, Catholic Requiem Mass, the DSERA, Day of Wrath, it is that melody. It's the same. If you play them next to each other, they're identical. Oh, that's Mm. awesome. But yeah, I I was surprised to learn that that is the only piece, and I mean, it's iconic. Everybody knows the Shining music. I'll put an example of that and the DSERA here. But, um... Uh, I was really shocked to learn that that was that there was an entire score built around that, and that's the only piece of it that was actually in the final cut of the film. I'm gonna have to get that a listen at some point. Yeah, There's I, I don't. I yeah, to, I if it I is hope it is accessible somewhere. Yeah. I didn't delve into that more, but I would be so curious to hear what the rest of that original score was written for that film.
0: Absolutely,
1: with that the same aesthetic of of that theme uh, as they fly into the Overlook. That does bring me to my one question i guess critique that i do have
4: for over this movie and that is why turquoise font 70s 80s i guess so <laughs> yeah, is... i like
2: it it's iconic it's unique you don't see it in any other movie really it's readable
3: that's all i care about really yeah.
4: it, it just struck me as weird That like, i was just like why, why this like neon turquoise font like that was Science. and that's literally my one i just don't i don't know <laughs> if there's a reason for it or what like the only other like sequence in the movie that has like turquoise or like sort of centered around that is the the succubus. Like that scene is two thirty seven. Yeah. Even
3: that would be much more of a a green heavy yeah. blue green. I feel like Like
4: a teal. Yeah. yeah. Sea foam. If anything
2: That was it, more
3: sea foam rather mm-hmm. than the titles, which would be closer to If a
2: anything teal. it might be just to separate itself from any color palette in the movie itself. <laughs> That's what I would each think. Each color palette is so evocative in the movie, you know, having the title separate kind
4: of I would I would say disparate.
1: Like Honestly, it's... I I have a I have a strange kind of appreciation for it just because like the rest of the film is so grand and like it's fucking Kubrick and everything about it is is, you know, so meticulously crafted for the credits to just be so plain and understated and just like a crawl of just like turquoise font. Words, I'm into it. You know, it. it doesn't feel like Kubrick trying to be like, look at this, it's flashy, the shiny. <laughs> or
3: even, like, look yeah. more
1: sophisticated. Right. Well, I mean, you It's don't just, need... like, it's so understated need... because the film says everything it needs to say. Yeah,
2: and you don't need flashy credits when you have one of the flashiest shots in the movie. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, that you know, helicopter like, shot is wild. Like
4: yeah I'm, I'm sort of thrown by it because, like, the, the turquoise just stands out to me so much. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, that sequence, though, is just... So fantastic. I I've, I've heard that you can see the helicopter reflected in the car, but I There's I, a
1: I, I shadow, there's a shadow from a misframing right at the very beginning of the shot. Oh. Uh I've I've never really noticed it. Yeah, I um, do is it. Is
0: it
3: Colorado? Where is that shot?
1: So, there that, are several the hotel is several buildings, one of which I've actually been to.
3: Well, I'm curious about the mountains.
1: That was in Montana. They also sent a team to get shots over the Rockies in Colorado where the film is supposed to take place. And they got the footage back, and it was really uninteresting, and mm-hmm. they didn't like it. So, yeah, that the that opening shot um, where they fly in over the lake in the mountains is, I believe, Montana. Well, there's Montana also— Montana or Wyoming. The, there's a lodge in Oregon. Well, yeah. the, the, oh, the yeah, Mount Hood.
0: Yeah, Mount Hood. The, ex- the
1: exterior—yeah, the exterior nice. of the yes. Overlook is in Oregon. Yeah. but the the opening shot is in montana
3: i'm not sure if any of your listeners will have heard of on-set cinema but there's a guy in north carolina who uh has Myers house in, in c and does on-set cinema screenings of films where they were shot and he's, oh really he's doing the shining at the spot in Oregon and the, the, lodge, the timberline oh, lodge timberline? Yeah. yeah
4: no I went snowboarding there it was it's, an awesome experience it's like
3: december 1st i think i was so that would upset be wild. It's wild. Oh why god it's like Ill. within days of my birthday like, and i was like oh my yeah man. it's
4: it's crazy um yeah timberline lodge doesn't look anything like the overlook on interior
1: no like, the design sure. of the interior of the overlook was pulled from like 5 or 6 different hotels and timberline is massive like it mm-hmm. is a you know it's a very very large
4: place but uh, I mean it's a that's a, pretty a, pretty a, weird, an incredible
1: establishing shot. I mean, what better way to show your viewer where they're going to spend the next 2 hours? Like mm-hmm. here it is. Oh yeah, and the but, and look at how and it. look at how remote it is too. Like that's what that opening shot really does well is like man, they're way fucking out there and once that snow comes in you are trapped. That is
3: isolation. Matter. You
1: are you are Donner partied, as uh, <laughs> as they even mention on the drive up there. Yeah, I heard it on the television. <laughs> yep. So one thing I do want to talk about because I think we've we've gone a lot into uh, what we like so much about the film. Um, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Ben Stephen King famously hated this film, uh, despite the fact that he was in very close contact with Kubrick for the majority of its production. Stephen King has since come around on The Shining uh, and admits that he was hard on it, uh, harder on it than than he thinks it deserves, but uh, you know, he's obviously in promotional shit for Dr. Sleep. This is an
2: interesting topic that I think it's good to talk about, because I think you're the only one who's read the
4: book out of
1: us. Yeah, have any of you other guys read it? No, I haven't read it. Unfortunately,
4: I wanted to before this podcast, but...
1: The the Time novel the novel is great. It's one of my favorite Stephen King novels. I understand Stephen King's uh chagrin a little bit because I don't think it is a very faithful adaptation of the novel. A lot of the events occur similarly. I think the best way to look at it is just a separate entity. They're both great and they do different things very well. But there are some pretty major changes between the book and uh, and the the film. Uh, one of the most notable ones that, that Stephen King particularly uh, harped on is that he didn't think that Kubrick really captured the idea of the overlook as... Not just a haunted hotel, but as a sentient being, as a force of pure evil created by... All of these horrific experiences lingering and coming together to to create uh, an intelligence. What do you guys think about that? Having only had access to the film, do you, how do you how does the overall come across? To you? I think that concept
2: comes over strongly between like the elevator full of blood and the way it's shot with it being so environment heavy, full of the shadows and emptiness of the
4: hotel. You're brought to think of. Stuff like that naturally, I think. Would you say that the kids' film Monster House is a more uh, <laughs> accurate, I think, adaptation of The Shining? No,
1: no, no it's not. It's not nearly such a uh, such a literal thing. The the hotel doesn't, uh, you know, grow arms and teeth and start <laughs> and start chomping. But you know, like Cle- Cleveland, you just you've just read it recently, and you know how Stephen King's kind of thing is. Like a place becoming an entity, yeah, and, and how uh, the man loves him some Indian burial grounds, and yes, uh, uh, which is stated in the both the book and the film that the Overlook was built on an Indian burial right. ground. I mean, like it has that pet cemetery, of course. That's the
0: whole
4: thing. Uh, the pet whole, cemetery. The whole, the whole premise. We have uh, the the Overlook is is set on an Indian burial ground, as well as a number of his other his, his short stories. Yeah.
3: There's um, enough imperial colonialism to go around, right? Yeah,
1: oh yeah, for yeah. sure, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I, Stephen King, you know, he he finds things that he likes that he uh, he does, and he reuses
3: them. <laughs> well, it totally resonates for me because if you think about something like a a, a more indigenous First Nations perspective on nature or or energy, right. it's definitely more akin to like a pantheistic or animistic point of view where there is this energy and there is this other force that's connecting everything. That becomes
1: malevolent by willfully desecrating it. Absolutely, right. yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. Those, like um,
4: tents are like pretty uh pretty strongly held in like Shintoism and stuff as well, that same idea of like a like a, a naturalistic holy place and you know how it can be corrupted if it's not like cared after. Right. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, definitely that same Where, that premise. I think it's it's really nicely universal.
1: But Stephen Stephen King felt that like in the film there's too much of it more being like Jack's weaknesses and sort of inequities that are influencing him and making him susceptible and that he just sort of goes mad. Whereas in, in the, the novel, it is like, sure. Jack is still a recovering alcoholic and he has the sort of violent past and he's hurt Danny before. So like all of that is still there, but it's much more of like a direct physical possession of the overlook taking control of him to wreak havoc on his family. I've
3: got to say, I I almost prefer the Kubrick version, if that's the case, because to me it puts more responsibility on Jack.
1: For the film, I agree with you. I think I I love the way that it's handled in the film. Well,
3: to me, he's like a stand-in for masculinity generally, circa sure. 1980. So it was a much better way of actually criticizing the way masculinity and femininity were expressed or how those energies and, and power dynamics played out and s- socially in the film because you have that responsibility placed on the character That's Jack.
1: That's uh, an excellent segue into the next bit that Stephen King didn't like is he thought that Shelley Duvall's character, Kubrick's adaptation of Wendy, was far too misogynistic a portrayal. She's very different from Wendy in the book. Wendy is much less passive and and meek in the book. She is much more self-determined, and Stephen King really had a problem with, with how helpless Wendy is.
3: I think Stephen King maybe, in that sense, is a little more innocent than Kubrick. Almost like he's he's not quite as I think I think
4: that's absolutely the case. Um, well, it's it's cool. Like I think that either like incarnation of Wendy like could be believable, but I think that her her weakness is such an apparent like from the, the get go is such an apparent flaw in her character. Like through that she allows her husband to be abusive, and you know these are all things that are you know definitive like flaws in a character, and that opens us up to. Care about her more, you know, and to be more worried for her, and to also sure. just associate with her because we've we've all forgiven people when maybe we shouldn't have. Sure, one. we've
3: all felt powerless mm-hmm. to change a situation or felt trapped.
4: Yeah. And yeah. I think if she'd been on a pedestal, that wouldn't have been as powerful. And and I, I, yeah. she,
1: I don't think she was on a. She's not on a pedestal so much in the novel, but she's. She's definitely more self-determined, you know, she's not, well, she's, she's not, she's not afraid to take action against Jack's will and stuff like when the storm comes in and like Danny has his experience with the the ghost woman in the bathroom, you know, whereas in the film she's like, we need, we should, you know, take the snow cat and get Danny to a doctor and he's just like, no, we can't do that. And she's just like, oh, okay, Jack. You know, yeah, I mean,
2: like... I, 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 see where he's coming from with that, but at the same time, the way it's structured in the film, it streamlines it really well. The book is what a thousand plus pages. Mm-mm.
1: No, it's not as long as it. It's more like four hundred pages. 500. It's average, even novel then. Lengths.
2: You know, uh, you come across the difficulty of condensing that into sure. a film. You're always going to lose something from that and i think the approach of streamlining it through
3: extremity you know almost. extremity
2: and the helpless entrapment of the situation um works well with the the themes that kubrick is going at and i don't think it would work quite as well if you I know. mean
1: I love I love Shelly Duval in this. I think that one of the more endearing aspects of her character and a more satisfying part of the ending is that she succeeds despite her helplessness.
3: Well, she takes yeah. her power back a little bit.
4: Oh, a hundred percent.
1: Yeah, there's
3: more of a
4: hero's journey in that.
3: Mm-hmm. especially once she realizes that danny's maybe been really harmed it's like no this is it i'm yeah. not taking your shit anymore
1: well and the thing is is like it's it she doesn't have like a a super like triumphant moment at the end where you know she she like she kills jack or something or like pulls danny out of a situation where he's about to die but she does still despite her her helplessness to really do anything in this situation she still fights and she still succeeds and and wins yeah it's, over the head. Yeah, like, it's he,
4: it yeah tumbles down the stairs like yeah she definitely has like a, an arc there because yeah. she wasn't necessarily capable of that at the beginning of the film you know, but she has to learn to become capable and, I, of and that it's to good save because child and I that's so much more effective than her just being powerful from the beginning. It's good too
1: because I because I think that Jack's undoing is is his own um, as it should be, he dies because he goes out into the maze after Danny and gets lost and freezes to death. He's not undone by anybody else he's it's it's once again it's his own undoing, just like everything has been in the film so far. Mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it could also be seen as like a, a punishment by the
4: hotel.
2: Sure, you know, it, yeah, it's an outdoor labyrinth, just like
4: the Overlook is. One warm of the one. too, if he doesn't, if he doesn't get away with it this time.
1: Another one know, of the though, big honestly. differences between the film and the book is that there is no hedge maze in the book. Rather, there are elaborate uh, hedge animals that move, and there's a really Wait, hold up.
3: That's really what? different.
1: There's a really horrifying scene in the book that I that is extremely scary where like Jack is just out like tending to the grounds and there's like hedge lions and he starts like looking back over his shoulder and seeing that they are like now looking over at him and he goes back to his work and he turns back and they're like closer and they're like taking predatory like crouching positions that the hedge the hedges are like moving in to attack him when he's not looking. It's very like Weeping Angels from uh, Doctor from Who, Doctor Who. Yeah. One, one question I had
2: for you uh, since you've read the book. Yeah. Have you seen the 97... 97- adaptation no um, um it was a th- what a three-part miniseries, miniseries from 97 which
1: was produced by Stephen King.
2: yeah and it was um, it was intentionally way more faithful i've heard,
1: I've heard it's not very i've good, heard though.
2: it's not good either yeah. but
1: i've heard they have very bad cg hedge yeah. animals well that's that's why that's why the hedge animals did not make it into the kubrick film is because he thought that there was no way that he could do it that wouldn't look stupid. Oh, and I mean in 1980 um, I and I agree and I agree wholeheartedly right. so they did the hedge maze instead, which I think beautifully mirrors how labyrinthine the Overlook is. The stuff with the Hedge Maze is great, and Jack Nicholson getting lost and dying in the Hedge Maze at the end is great. Uh, I also read that a lot of that snow, that fake snow that was in the Hedge Maze, they also used on Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) Shot in the same studio. Um,
4: Uh, To Capstone... If if only Jack Nicholson had had a tauntaun.
1: Right, you
2: know, <laughs> yeah. He it would have been it's
4: okay. It's, kind of open. it's not wrong,
2: it would have been just fine. You know? To capstone all of Stephen King's complaints, I, I just want to say that I find it so rich that he was complaining so much about the Shining adaptation and then a year or two later
1: made Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs> Go back and listen to our episode on Maximum Overdrive. Just, It was a blast. <sighs> no, I mean, that's the thing, I and... Uh, and I think Stephen King is self-aware enough about that. Uh, I think another reason he stopped shitting on The Shining so much was because Kubrick still had the film rights to The Shining when they tried to make that miniseries. So part of Kubrick's deal with Stephen King was like, all right, I'll sell you the rights so you can make this TV show, but you gotta stop shitting on my movie. <laughs> 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 It worked. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he did. Uh, Who knows how how much he actually still thinks that The Shining is uh, good or bad, but I mean, he sure is out there shilling for Dr. Sleep. I I guess he
3: alluded to it a little bit in that extended teaser. (sighs) Right,
1: Oh, I feel so ripped
2: off uh, from the that one at the cool. Carolina. They said it was
1: going to be eight minutes, and they showed us the same trailer, but color-graded wrong. It was, yeah. it was 45 seconds. It
3: really, except it also had that interview with Stephen King right. where, where he's talking about like, he's like, this the is faithful is, yeah. to both the original.
4: Both the,
1: the original movie and movie. the book.
4: Right. Which uh, this bring up an interesting point for me or I guess a sort of a, a funny analog is I was thinking about just how Stephen King's works overall have been treated have have you know gotten the film treatment sure compared to say like Philip K. Dick who the majority of his works don't even have the same title by the time they make it to the screen right Ridley Scott didn't even allow people to read Do Androids dream on set for Blade Runner like they're, they're such different films but the new Blade Runner manages to do a pretty good job of being both faithful to do Andrew's dream and also the the original film yeah and I think it is possible to do an adaptation like that and if and if it can be done with something that was so dramatically different from the book I, I wonder like The Shining isn't that that different from the film like by comparison I I, I wonder if it, it's well like, I think part of the difference is Stephen King is still alive and can
2: have a more direct hand on control over that stuff. Um, well,
1: that that's the thing. I'm trying to keep my expectations pretty low for Doctor Sleep, but it is Mike Flanagan who... We've talked about extensively on the show. With
2: Oculus and With Oculus
1: and Absentia and Hush, and uh, we did Gerald's Game, uh, which is another adaptation of A King work that he did, and I I really like Mike Flanagan's work. Same. I did read Dr. Sleep. Uh, I thought the book was great. I don't know how the adaptation to film is going to be. I'm going to try to keep an open mind, but (laughs) we'll see. The trailer has me concerned.
3: Well... Um it's the cgi and the eyeballs that really threw me but it's, it's, got it's just CG. like the hedge mage
4: thing like you were saying that the eyeballs like the glowy eyes and stuff is in the books yeah but the hedge mage stuff is in the books too you see like in the shining and like that's i don't know i watched that trailer and i thought anime you know it was just like or, or like x-men or something very comic booky you well, know yeah, like glowing it eyes look a
3: little bit more like a comic
4: book and I, I wonder i think there's going i love be... comic booky stuff I, and I love anime. I'm so I'm
1: who's to say but. I'm concerned how the villains in this movie are going to be depicted because I think they're very scary in the book, but if done wrong, could be goofy. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely condensed I'm gonna be gonna
2: down read, to a read it down. Sparks note, you know, film length. Do you think they have enough time to do that well?
1: I think so. Doctor Sleep is not a terribly long book; not longer than an average novel, you know, three four hundred pages. So I think. I think it can be done. I like that Ewan McGregor's in it. I like him. Oh, so. he's
3: so good.
1: True. He'll be playing uh, grown-up Danny, so we'll see how that is.
3: Well, it, it brings me back to one of the things that's actually my favorite things about Kubrick's The Shining, which is just that concept of Shining, just that ability yeah. of particular minds to be able to communicate through space and time in that kind of a way, and to be able to get those visions.
1: Well, that's what that's what Doctor Sleep does. Is Doctor Sleep develops on the concept of The Shining I'll, that that is like its main focus. That I'm is the, really
3: excited about that, which is
1: which is cool. Like there's, I I know in the trailer they've been making a big deal about him going back to the Overlook, you know, because they have to be like it's a sequel to The Shining, but like. A lot of the events of The Shining are not particularly crucial to Doctor Sleep. Like, it it, it very much stands on its own as a, a single story, though it does end with them going back to the, the site of the Overlook. Oh, um, so I'll we'll
3: have to wait till the end?
0: Uh, probably, in, in this case, probably not. In this case, probably not.
1: Uh, who who fucking knows? Well, in the in in the book, The Shining, the Overlook gets blown up at the end because the uh, wait what? The, well, the the main reason he's hired is because it has like an ancient boiler system to heat all of the rooms that has been around oh, since like fun. the early 1900s. Okay. okay, so every day at certain times he has to go down to the boiler room to like release the pressure so it doesn't build up too much.
3: What you see Wendy doing ultimately mm. when there the
1: in- the one time yeah that's the only time you the boiler is even like mentioned as you see her doing it at one point in like a throwaway scene uh but so the idea is that like the overlook possesses jack not only as like a, a means to do mischief but also because it needs him because he has to release the pressure in the boiler so at the end when he's like really trying to kill jack and and dan or uh wendy and danny uh, the overlook that's controlling him forgets to you know forgets about the pressure building up, so in the chaos it explodes i 'm just imagining the movie ending with Wendy and Danny slowly walking
4: away from the <laughs> overlook as it explodes, like Rambo
1: <laughs> and so that 's how Jack dies in the book is is in the explosion he tries to go down to release the pressure, but it 's too late and it blows up. So in Doctor Sleep, in the book, there's the Overlook is not there anymore. It's just the site, where the Overlook used to be. But as we saw in the trailers, the Overlook is definitely still there in the movie. So he's got to go back and wander those old, old halls, and they're probably going to do way too much member this, member this. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, they were copying shots of that. That's what deep makes deep. me more nervous than anything, is that, like I said, Doctor Sleep stands on its own merits, and I'm afraid that this film adaptation is going to try too hard to be a sequel to The Shining. Well, and that's
2: the thing. It's such big shoes to fill as a direct sequel. Even, you know, going back to The Overlook and getting... The same, you know, locations. You know, you're not going to get that same pristine color palette. You know, we already saw it's much darker. You know,
3: I am a little concerned at the idea of there being a sequel to a Kubrick film that's, that's not n- a Kubrick film. That's the thing. It's, I've I've never seen the follow up to 2001. Me either. I've
1: avoided because it because I just thought I didn't even know there was one. Yeah, 2010. 2010.
3: Christ. The year we make contact or something like that, I was...
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Is like I think Mike Flanagan is a very competent, talented, even director. But the, y- just, yeah, you like are just things, like, you're, you're just really, standing really up to Kubrick.
4: It, yeah, like, you know, it's like well, Casablanca it, 2, play it again so. and <laughs> 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 so, yeah, plays it again. Even worse than that, I mean, I feel like
2: you you run the risk of tarnishing the original's legacy in some way. Yeah, you know, it's it's easy to ignore it if it's bad, but it's still on the Records I think that's thing out not gonna there.
3: happen. I think based on the title alone that won't happen. People will be like, Doctor Sleep, is that another Well yeah, that's movie?
2: that's a good point. You know, it's not titled The Shining, the Shining Two. Two But they the but Shinier in the, in the
1: trailers <laughs> in the trailers they make the, the shinier. In the trailers, they make damn They're sure that you know no it's secret. the sequel That it's oh, the yes. sequel well, they to play the, the Shining. Theme And all of it. Yeah. Right, uh, yeah.
4: And Red rum is all over every internet right, for it. Like, right, yeah. Oh, and Ewan McGregor's so cute. <laughs>
0: I,
1: I'm going in with an open mind, knowing that I like Mike Flanagan and I like Ewan McGregor, and I just hope they do the book justice. We already know
4: that Ewan McGregor can do trippy horror sequences really well with, like, train spotting and
1: stuff. (laughs) Right. We'll see. Uh, We have been going on for a long time. Uh, I think it's probably time to rate The Shining. We got off on a tangent about Dr. Sleep.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, at this point, I feel like it's almost a formality. Because I think we all know what we're gonna rate this. movie Yeah, well, oh, but we have yeah.
1: we have we have a wild we have a wild card of our guest. We rate things around here out of five. Half stars are fine or pods as we call them. Um, but yeah, I think this is gonna be a, a, a mostly a formality. It's a five out of five for yeah. Me. It's a
2: five. It's it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Um, I do wanna shout out. There's an amazing album by the artist The Caretaker called songs from a haunted ballroom inspired by this movie Um, check that out if you like this movie because this movie is near perfect
4: the turquoise font at the beginning uh, half a star (laughs) (laughs) sorry guys no, nah, I'm
3: kidding. It's five. I was going to say half a star, like four and a half? Or like a, you're giving this film a half a star, <laughs> no, right, 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 because like, like, the title. It's, it's
4: the first thing you see in the movie. Like you know, I Post might. It's a slasher film on you right now. No, five. It's five.
1: Well, yeah. what's your honest rating, Katie?
3: All right. Well, I, I feel like I should preface it.
1: You don't have to give it a five just because we did.
0: I feel
3: like I have to preface my rating with this because to me, the most powerful element of the film is that It's not just a haunted hotel. It's a haunted hotel that's been frequented by the best people. It's the most powerful people possible. Multiple
1: presidents have stayed there.
3: Presidents, you have this immense hierarchy that's alluded to, and I think in these strange times that we live in, I still love and hold on to the idea of this nefarious elite who were engaging in like the most traumatic kinds of activities the oh most yeah uh, evil
1: we, we of... all have epstein brain thank here. you i was about to say that <laughs> yeah we've all got epstein brain
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> it wasn't a suicide so for that reason especially but but also because of everything that we've spoken about here already obviously a five out of five. There's just having a filmmaker like Kubrick on this. He's not going into a project like this to make a mistake. No. And he didn't. It's a perfect film.
1: And that being said, because we probably won't talk about any of Kubrick's other films on the show because they're not horror movies. I don't think that every Kubrick film is perfect, but this one this one fucking is, for could sure. Could you do
3: Eyes Wide Shut on this podcast?
1: Uh, maybe. Ooh. I've thought about it. It's on I, the fence, but I it's think, on the fence I think yeah. we could justify it. Because I would get really tinfoil hatty by the end of it. If we wanted to really yeah. go there, then we might do Eyes Wide Shut. Esoteric I time. Yeah. Ooh. Um, I uh, I, another one. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, but I know enough I about it. I have seen it a few times. Oh, fun. I...
2: Yeah, it'll get me devolving into a conspiracy theory about how uh, Kubrick was killed. Probably, yeah. <laughs> that Something yeah, that like one, that, that one will
1: bring out the uh, the pizza mine. Just consider me. it, and
3: I'd <laughs> love to come back and talk. I mean, about mean, maybe that. we, yeah, if, 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 we'd have you back for. Oh, Eyes Wide just Shut. so you—they're screening it locally. Duke is actually screening Eyes Wide Shut. It, I think in just a couple of weeks they're doing Eyes Wide Shut, and they're doing Mulholland Drive in 35 millimeter. <gasps> oh, just so oh, so you're oh, aware. I love Mulholland Drive. I just drive. thought I should go ahead and pitch that because.
4: Thank you for that. Screen Society is on it. Here's a fun question: Favorite Kubrick films? I know mine is personally the Lunar Landing. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: oh, I was wondering that's why you asked one. That question.
1: Uh, <laughs> maybe okay, Barry Lyndon or Paths of Glory? One of the two. Barry Lyndon's one of my least favorite Kubricks. <sighs> I uh, oh, that's a dark horse. Movie. I uh, yeah, The Shining is probably my favorite that I've seen. I also really like Full Metal Jacket.
3: Oh well I guess we're gonna be a well rounded group then because my favorite film ever for maybe ten years was Apocalypse Now until I saw Kubrick's Lolita.
1: One which, I still haven't seen of his. I have not seen all of his stuff. This once, probably mine. It's uh, good. I've uh, seen it, yeah.
3: You know, they're all I love I would like to say I love all of them equally because I really do love every single Kubrick film. But when I saw Lolita for the first time, I think some, it was like a like a dam that broke inside my head. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. And there's something about Kubrick in black and white. Because he was a photographer before he was a filmmaker, his respect for chiaroscuro and gradation in the frame, it, it just... I I had never seen anything quite like it before and it was revelatory. Also Peter Sellers as yeah. Claire Quilty was incredible. James Mason I, I mean it's an amazing cast, a really well-crafted film. So I uh, it, it really is hard to say though cuz you know You bring up 2001. Oh, my
4: God. Yeah,
2: it it almost depends on the day of the week. I could easily Mm -hmm. say The Killers, 2001, Dr. Strangelove, even.
4: Oh, oh man, Uh hold on. I might have to change it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was an an interesting discussion question there.
1: Yeah. Spartacus. uh, (laughs) Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. It's actually a great film. That's our third unanimous five out of five in a row I Whoa, promise right. we did not intend to do that. I'm not going to. Dr. Sleep can... Right? Oh, well, that's no. the thing. Is like I'm, oh, not, I'm no. I mean, <laughs> that train roll. <laughs> I feel like it's unlikely that we'll have a fourth in a row. But maybe Doctor Sleep is the best movie of 2019. <laughs> 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 All right, yeah, uh, let's.
4: Uh, man, that's another thing too. It's like it's. It's going against some pretty big contenders for like what what else I've seen on the big.
1: screen. It's been a
2: strong year. year for horror. Maybe the, one of the strongest. Cleveland
1: and I were talking about this the other day. Maybe the strongest year for horror ever. Like you get you have years
4: where like two things come out after each other or just like you know, a I of great it's films, definitely a contender.
1: I can't no, I can't think of another another. Single year that has had this many incredible like, horror. And, and I you know IMAX, Us, climax, us climax, mid-sum- Midsummer, uh, Lighthouse. Oh it just yeah. doesn't uh, stop. Ready or not, ready or not, like yeah.
2: just
4: like so many like bangers, like absolute bangers. Well, and that's the thing.
2: Man. I've started to build really my best of the decade horror movie list for the end of the year for our episode. There's a good chunk of them just from this year. Mm -hmm. And it feels weird putting that many, but I think it's just evocative of how quality this year this this year
1: and like and like 2016 was another year like that too because 2016 had like raw and the witch Witch, Uh, it follows like right before it follows was the year before just the last half of, of this decade has been so incredibly stacked uh but we'll talk more about that in our best films of the decade yeah. episode at the this end of the year This year's not even over yet. It's not this episode needs to be about it its end because I still have to edit this. But before we go, we have to get paid. So Cleveland, why don't you go on over to the sponsor shelf? Yes, sir. And uh, pull us down uh, a sponsor for this week.
4: Yeah, so um okay, here we go. We got a nice got a nice re- relevant sponsor for us this week. Okay. Have you ever uh, have you ever, uh, burnt toast in your house? Well, I'm sure. I've had a stroke knows. before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You ever, uh, uh, speaking of strokes, you ever, uh, murdered your whole family before? Once or twice. It can happen to any of us, really. Well, worry no longer. Uh, get, get the smell right out with, uh, canly stew bricks, Kubrick in a can. Make that shine, shine away. Get it out of here with what did I say Canly stew bricks <laughs> <laughs> stew brick in a can or whatever the fuck make that shine stop shining the world doesn't need to shine anymore
1: all right well that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that sponsor <laughs> If you liked this extra beefy, extra special episode and that fantastic sponsor, uh, go on down to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and smash the five stars and leave a nice review. Review us like you would review Kubrick because we truly are the Kubricks of the horror podcast We, we did record scene. this podcast
4: 147 times until we got it right. That's why it feels so natural.
1: I broke 12 chairs in the <laughs> sitting <laughs> so long to record this podcast. Here's Johnny! <laughs> so take that into consideration when you leave us a, a rating and review uh, because it does not come cheap uh, on our mental states to provide such quality programming as we do. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod or at Letterboxd.com/podpeoplepod, where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show, with our average ratings and links to those reviews. And um, you know, we just put another one into the the halls of the golden pods. So uh, go look at The Shining there next to others mm-hmm. <laughs> um
4: Let's insert that dj college yeah one. another
1: one another one speaking of another one you can follow me on twitter at mr van awesome i'm on twitter at mr sheets
4: you're more than another one but uh you can follow me uh sometimes shooting for light arc studio and of course you can check out our work It stares back on Steam. Uh, Just give it a Google. Our ESO is quite good. SEO. Whatever the fuck it is, it's (laughs) It's so good,
1: I don't have to remember what it's called. ESO Speedwagon. You get it. Uh, Katie, do you have anything that you would like to plug where people can find you or Shameless
3: self-promotion? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool.
1: You've earned it.
3: Hey, it's been so fun to be part of the Pod People podcast. You guys are great. If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about what I do, writing about film with an esoteric or metaphysical bent, you can find my blog at www.lamlyoptic.com slash blog that's lamlyoptic.com you can also follow me on instagram at lamlyoptic
2: We'll put your uh, link in the description as that's well so in the show nice. notes.
1: Hell yes, Thank absolutely. You. Well, I'm sure that if you go and read uh, what Katie's written, it will be much more coherent than the average episode of this show. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know. So, it gets a little uh,
3: subjective, is all I'm saying.
1: You know, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, definitely check that out. And thank you so much for joining us, Katie. It was yes, a blast. Sure. We would love to have I you back again. I would
3: love to talk to you guys more about more movies. I will have a post coming out really soon about Apocalypse Now, covering the new cut, uh, Coppola's final cut of Apocalypse Now. Fantastic. So keep this an eye out for that. This
1: episode will be up on Thursday. Oh,
3: sweet. So yes. uh, I, I don't know
1: if that will be out by then or... Maybe. Well, <laughs> well, apocalypse, give myself s- soon. Apocalypse, apocalypse soon. Apocalypse eventually. Apocalypse, <laughs> it's coming, we promise. <laughs> All right. God. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And just remember that if you're going to chase your son out into a hedge maze, maybe put on a warmer coat. You know,
3: Bring a thread.
1: <laughs>
3: <Maybe. laughs>
0: Thank mm-hmm. you.